our mission, and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that, when implemented, will improve our safety, our environment and how we govern out business. We are making the world safer and we're going to have fun doing it. Okay, everyone, welcome back to a new episode of the Mission Zero podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Peoples. Uh, Today, I'm in sunny and beautiful Denver, Colorado. My guest today is Chris Wright, the CEO of Liberty Energy. I have to keep trying to say, not say Liberty Oilfield anymore, but the CEO of Liberty Energy, uh, one of the most, uh, I would say, uh, advanced uh, speakers on the quality of energy to our lives, how it's improved our lives, and how much we need it in this world. And I've uh, I've appreciated his his candor over the years um, in that form. And uh, welcome back, Chris. It's nice to talk to you again. Great to see you, Jeff, and great to be back. No, thank you. Um, I guess where we left off last time, uh, you had just uh, released the report, the ESG report. You had talked a lot about a lot of things. Um, one thing I saw in particular, uh, the poverty net zero, and, the, and you wrote about that. One of the things I love the, to talk about in the energy discussion is outside of the normal parameters. Somebody's making an intellectual case for why we need fossil fuel energy. And you and uh, Alex Epstein, I think, are the two people in this world that have finally taken the intellectual approach to to, to describing this and doing this. So when you say poverty net zero, what do you mean by that? Well, net zero poverty. Yeah, net zero you know, poverty. Everybody's saying net zero 2050 with emissions. Yeah. And as you've heard me say, I think that's, that's a bad goal. Not mm-hmm. only is it not achievable, but the only way to achieve it is sort of a road to impoverishment and de-energizing of society, mm-hmm. which will hurt everyone. But of course, it'll hurt low-income people far more than it'll hurt high-income people. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I, I set out, made a short video and said, look, what's a real goal? Goals should be achievable, maybe stretches, but achievable. And you should be thrilled if you achieve that goal. So I, I suggested our goal should be net zero poverty 2050. Mm-hmm. And by 2050, I think with reasonable sober policies, we should be able to get rid of destitution, sort of complete very low levels of poverty where people are struggling to make their next meal. They're not sure if they're going to wake up the next morning. Um, that's an achievable goal. We're always going to have relative differences in income. We're always mm. going to have people that make more than other people. Mm. So we're always going to have people that say they're poor. But we still have today about 700 people, 700 million people around the world that are really on the edge of destitute. They're, they're destitute. Yeah. They, they're, they're, they're malnourished. They're, they're, they're one bad happening away from death. And that used to be the normal human condition. 90% of uh, humanity lived in that condition for a long time. Mm. We've reduced that to about a little less than 10% today. Let's get that to zero by 2050. We ought to be able to do that. That's an admirable goal I think we should all get behind. How much of the improvement on it, and I've looked, I've done the research myself about poverty and especially in countries like India and China. And I, in, in your ESG report for Liberty, you had a chart there. You had the data that said that, look, this corresponds directly with energy usage, that uh, China and India had uh, reduced poverty by several folds over, maybe by 70% or something like that. And it was directly lined with cheap energy. 
And how much do you, do you agree that cheap energy is is the maybe the largest factor in reducing poverty globally? It's the only road out of poverty. There is no one that has emerged from poverty without a significant increase in their consumption of energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, as you know from our name, I think two things have really created the modern world where we have so many people living in relatively well-off conditions. That's bottom-up social organization, human liberty, mm-hmm. markets, property rights, these things that allow people to get wealthier. But when you get wealthier, it necessarily and always involves increased consumption of energy. Yeah. People tend to, or they, if they never knew, they tend to forget capitalism was created for poor people. It wasn't created for rich people. It was created for poor people to find a way out of poverty. And it, it has done that. And, and I know capitalism along uh, with, with you know, the increased energy uses of cheap energy, uh, we see energy prices uh, going higher. Gas, you know, people are filling out at the pump. Uh, what are you attributing to that now? What, what's causing it? I know uh, Saudi Arabia has been announced some cuts recently. Is is that part of the, the increase in global prices? Yes. I mean, look, recently COVID threw a big monkey wrench in the world, right? We mm-hmm. shut down this societies or wealthy societies, reduced energy consumption, shrunk global trade. So that that took oil prices, um, you know, down deeply. And then coming back out of COVID, uh, what's been the problem? Well, demand has come back strongly. Remember, BP came out and said, maybe 2019, that's going to be peak ever demand for energy. There were a lot of pronouncements that we're going to come back transitioned. We're not going to need hydrocarbons anymore. We're going to we're going to accelerate this energy transition coming out of it. So that kind of naive beliefs that somehow the the several five billion people are walking around in hand washed clothes. More than half of humanity doesn't have a washing machine to to save time and wash their clothes. Mm-hmm. It's just I think naive or evil, or some combination of the two to believe they should never have washing machines. They should never have access to electricity. They should never have modern medicine. Like, hey, Jeff, you and I know that isn't going to happen, and we don't want that to happen. And we simply don't have meaningful substitutes for oil, gas, and coal today. We have other technologies that are really derivatives of hydrocarbons Mm -hmm. that produce other kinds of energy, mostly in the electricity sector. But they're not replacements in any way for hydrocarbons. But that sort of attitude, that sort of belief has led to underinvestment in our sector. Mm-hmm. Heck, we inaugurated a new president who the day he got inaugurated said he wasn't going issue to any, issue any more permits on federal land. And, and I could go into all the other things, but all of them are a piece of one whole, mm-hmm. which is we're going to make it harder to produce oil and gas in the United States. So think about that. Let's just reflect on that. We're the largest oil producer in the world, the largest natural gas producer in the world, the largest natural gas liquid producer, of which propane and clean cooking fuel is one. We're by far the largest producer of that. So if the biggest producer of all of these uh, life-enabling products says, we're going to make it harder to produce them here, well, what, what, there's an obvious result of that. You, you're going to get less production than you otherwise would get. And if you reduce the supply of something without changing the demand for it, you get higher prices. Sure. So we've been on a policy perspective to try to drive up the price. I mean, it's never stated that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not to drive up the oil and gas. It's somehow if we produce less oil, somehow magically, that'll lead to other energies seamlessly filling that gap. Um, and I don't. You don't have to speak too much on politics, but what do you think is behind that? What, what what is the ultimate reason that we're trying to 
kill? Is it because of they they truly believe it's the climate, or do you believe it's something else? You know, I don't. I think it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, most of them, most politicians or, or, you know, activists that are very passionate about this topic, and I engage with a lot of them, most of them don't know that much about climate change. Mm-hmm. They don't know what the mechanism for warming is. They don't know how much greenhouse gases have gone up. They believe storms are wildly more frequent and bigger today. They aren't. Yeah. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change covers that or Bettering Human Lives report covers that. Like these are just facts that they're unaware of. Yeah. So my first sort of reaction is, I don't think it's a deep, a deeply held passionate belief backed by research that climate change is the greatest threat to humanity. It's nowhere near the greatest threat to humanity if you look at data or numbers. So I think it's something else. And, and my suspicion is it's a number of different factors. When I speak in schools, um, for most kids, it's a meaning thing. It gives them a purpose. It gives, you know, it's it's like a North Pole for them. Yeah. There's a problem in the world. The world is at great risk. I'm going to be virtuous and do something to help the world. There's the angels that are doing the right things. There's the devils that are doing the right, th- the wrong things that are the threat. You know, it's 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 mostly a, a, a religion. It's sort of a modern religion. Yeah. Society is rapidly secularized. Mm-hmm. And that leaves a hole, right? You, yeah. Your kid, you, you know, just having like a new no iPhone or a bigger bike, that's just, that's, that isn't going to give you meaning or purpose in your mm-hmm. life, Jeff. I love your word there, yeah. purpose. Yeah. So I think for the young, I, I think it's all, they want to make the world a better place. They want to have a meaningful life. They want to do something great. I think it comes from all the right places, yeah. but it just sort of fills this vacuum. Here's your religion. Here's your purpose in life. You know, for politicians, what do politicians do? They control the levers of power in a government. You and I, Jeff, we were just talking about, we're growing our businesses. We're proud of that. We love to do it. Heck, if you're a politician, if you want to grow your business, it means bigger government. Yeah. We got to control some more stuff. We got to move some resources from these people over here that, that we don't like so much or that are politically unpopular to these people over here that are politically important to us. So it's it's a reason for more power and a greater role for government. You know, for universities, again, it's it's the great funder of research. When I was a grad student at MIT, it was the Department of Defense that was the, the funder for basic research or new technology. Today, climate change is the biggest source of sort of money. For I talk to professors in universities and, you know, they're working on the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, a, a, a long-term ocean circulation current that... Co- causes change in drought and precipitation. It's a very fascinating and important phenomenon. But if they write that this is about the PDO, they're not going to get funded. But if it's about climate change and and its impacts on humans, they can get funding. You know, I I could be totally off base, but one thing I think it is, I think it's just a certain group of wealth that wants to that 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 money that's going to come from energy. They just want it to switch to what they have. They, they own these companies and they want them. They, they're not going to get money from oil and gas companies because outside of the United States, they're primarily state-owned companies, right? They're never going to capture that money if it's carbon because Shell is state-owned. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is state-owned. They're all state-owned. I think it's a lot to do with that. And, and of course, you, I believe you're absolutely right about the the the, the, the lost the lost generation. They don't have a purpose. They, they latch on to causes and, they, and, it's, and they're – emotionally manipulated and uh you see things like you know i don't know if you've you're probably not online as busy as you are but there is a giant uptick in climate change panic this year because we're having a hot year 
We're having an incredibly hot year. I don't know if you how many times you've been out in Texas, but it's the worst I've ever seen, to be quite honest. But there's no pattern to that. The last few years have been really normal. So I guess um, <clears throat> the next question I would ask you. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Let me follow up on that, Jeff. So what, one thing I'm going to ask you, correct. So Shell is not state-owned. It's, it's it's a private company. It was oh, originally oh. started as a Dutch company that merged with a with a with a UK company. But it's it's a private company. But it is sort of being imposed there was a lawsuit in the netherlands that's sort of driving its its behavior a little bit from outside but it's a private business but you but jeff you make the key point the majority of oil and gas resources in the world and the majority of oil and gas production in the world is not from private businesses yeah. it's from state-owned government enter enterprises you know that the, the russian producers are owned by the government the saudi company is owned by the government about 10 percent is floated publicly but they're almost all the large production are state government entities that produce oil and gas. So is there a profit motive also in this energy transit? Well, of course, there's a profit motive in everything. Yes, are there economic interests aligned with huge subsidies to, to, you know, to, to develop wind farms and solar panels and other ways to make money? Of course, there always is. But that's not enough to drive the mania that you and I have seen over yeah. the last 10 or 20 years. So it's a combination of all of these factors. Do I worry about that monetary one? I do. I always say to people, it's not a risk to oil and gas. Oil and gas powered the world when I was born, and they'll power the world when I'm dead. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how many wind 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 uh, wind farms you build or solar farms you build. They 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 feed into the electricity sector, which is twenty percent of global energy, and they really can't get maybe beyond forty percent of that. They likely never leave single digits in total energy. They aren't threats to oil and gas uh, consumption, broadly speaking, mm -hmm. but they're threats to our economy. Because um, if you make electricity more expensive here, you're just going to export your industry. It's going to be stuff is going to be manufactured in some other country with lower cost, more reliable electricity and energy. Y Europe is sort of poster child of that. They're way they're way down the road of just exporting their energy intensive manufacturing outside of Europe. I don't want that to happen in the United States. That lowers blue collar yeah. incomes. That lowers opportunities for people across the educational spectrum in our country. I'm adamantly against that. Not because it's a threat to our industry per se, but it's a threat to our society and it's a threat to our way of life. But if you have large economic interests that are counting on monies, um, it is hard to reverse directions. Yeah. I think, and I don't know if we want to get into this, but the Inflation Reduction Act, that's nominally a, just a third Climate of a trillion act. dollars of subsidies for, and I think Joe Manchin supported it because, well, this isn't going to hurt the, you know, the hydrocarbon industry. It's just subsidies for these other guys. And what's wrong with giving them some subsidies? Um, the problem is it's we've had 20 years of subsidies there, and it's always supposedly about to be cost break even, so yeah. it won't need subsidies. But those subsidies, they're not a, a third of a trillion dollars. That was a scenario. Mm -hmm. They're uncapped. It's likely going to be well over a trillion dollars of government subsidies that'll draw in trillions of dollars of private capital that now gets a reasonable return when paired with those subsidies and the mandates. Yeah. Um, so this will change behavior and will ultimately, I think, degrade the quality of the U.S. electricity grid. I think now we're started we're more rapidly down that road of making electricity more expensive and less reliable in this country. This, I think, is bad for our society. It's bad for economic mobility. Um, it's deeply inequitable. Not that it's a threat to oil and gas demand, yeah. but it's wrong for our society. Yeah. I'm against that. 
You, you know, and you spoke in your uh, report, it was more than just our society, right? Uh, one of the, as we mentioned earlier, the key factors of coming out of poverty is cheap energy. And right now, because of these, I guess, the trend towards uh, climate change, uh, reactionary policies or whatever, these countries, these poor countries are not getting, they're not getting licenses. They're not getting help with the refineries. Build, they can't build refineries, right? And so... You've got a woman, uh, and I think you, I think I got this from your thing. You got a woman who uh, in, in Africa who spends two and a half to three hours a day just to find clean water. So going beyond, okay, she doesn't have the electricity to cook and clean in her house. She now doesn't have the time to proactively think to become an engineer, to become an architect. For and there's a, so in my you know looking at it that way. Oil unleashes brain power because it saves you time. It, it energy to me, like you know, if you like I said washing clothes, if you hand wash clothes, that's hours. If you put it in a wash machine, it's ten minutes. And so, you know, cheap energy to me would would be an enormous uh, plus in, in 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 the world ingenuity and unlocking a lot of people's brain power and creativity that are, are don't, don't currently do not have that time. Right. So, and another thing I uh, wanted to follow up on is. Uh, I guess the misinformation is out there, you know, the storms. You mentioned that earlier. So many people, storms are less, fire, fire, fires are less. Is that true as well? Uh, yeah, acres burned annually from wildfires. We have pretty good global data for about 30 years. Uh -huh. It's declined about 25%. So it's a, a steady decline over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. We have less, we have pretty good data in the U.S. for over 100 years. Mm -hmm. um, and our Smokey the Bear campaign in the, in the 50s and 60s led to just a plummeting in burned acres in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But then we, then we, for environment or quote environmental reasons, we, we made it harder and harder to manage federal lands for mm -hmm. cleaning out underbrush, for controlled burns, and essentially managing forests. Mm -hmm. So we've had a rise in wildfire and acres burned in the United States over the last 20 or 30 years, um, still far below what they were before the active campaigns to put out wildfires. So they're lower than they were, but they, in the U.S., they're higher than they were 20 or 30 years ago, entirely for forest management reasons. Mm -hmm. But globally, acres burned, as, as you just said, yes, has been on a... Well, we, we have good data for 30 years, and it's been declining throughout those 30 years, and, and no reason to believe that decline won't continue. That's human activities. Mm -hmm. What What are some of the... Uh, you know, we, we, we probably all know the different uh, alternatives, and, and you said they're mostly, mostly being moved along by uh, the you know government subsidies currently. Um, what do you, what are some of the downsides to say wind power and uh, I guess wind and electric cars? Uh, you know that's the most aggressive thing that that I guess policy seems to be following. Let's get everybody in electric cars. I think California has a maybe a twenty thirty five mandate for no gasoline cars, which to me I I just can't get it. Is you know I guess I'd ask you. How would the grid work? How are we figuring that out? How is the energy supplied for these things? And also negativity. You know, one thing we hear about is the, the I guess, the, the human toll and the environmental toll on the mining of products necessary for these vehicles and these types of things. Can you just kind of go through what you think is the downside and, and that people may not understand? 
I, I will, Jeff. Just quick background, and I know I know you know. Look, I've spent my whole life fascinated by energy. Mm-hmm. I, I specifically went to MIT to work on fusion energy. I worked on oh, solar energy wow. at UC Berkeley, and I worked on geothermal energy also in my twenties. Next generation geothermal. So I don't I don't care where energy comes from. I just wanted affordable, reliable, and better human lives. Mm-hmm. Um, today, Liberty, we own part of a, a next generation geothermal company. We're excited about that company called Fervo. We can use hot underground rocks that if they're near to the surface to to almost economically produce firm low carbon energy. Firm meaning 24 hours a day, whether the sun is is shining or the wind is blowing, we can produce electricity by converting heat from underground into electricity. Um, Super interested in the nuclear space. I spoke at the National Nuclear Conference this year, surveyed all of the small modular reactor companies. We are partnering with one of them. So look, Liberty is about energy and about making people's lives better and spreading affordable, reliable energy around the world. Mm -hmm. So there are alternatives or alternative is the wrong term. There's additional energy sources beyond hydrocarbons. Top of that is nuclear. But I think next generation geothermal is going to have a role too. But of course, those aren't politically popular. So let me ask you uh, to expand on nuclear. Uh, Why is nuclear, uh, I guess, why did we abandon? I know I'd fear, you know, we had disasters in the 70s that uh, put a fear in people's minds about it. And I grew up that way as well. But is, I guess the one thing I heard is that it's a 10 year process just to get one built is pretty much the, the huge downside to it. But what do you think the reason why we haven't supported that as a government or Society. Yeah, fear is an incredibly powerful political force, maybe the most powerful political force. If you can scare people, you can direct action. You can change things. You know, why is climate change now called a crisis? Because mm-hmm. if something's a crisis, it's not a rational thought about evaluating trade-offs. It's action now. We're in crisis. Yeah. So that that wording, that, that scare, and of course, that's that's what's hampering our industry now, but the nuclear has had the same thing, but much worse. Yeah. It's easier to scare people about radiation that you can't see or you can't understand. So yes, nuclear has always had opposition based on fear. Now the track record of nuclear has been fantastic. Mm. That the safety, it, it's the safest form sure. of energy production for negative a- impacts on human lives. Nuclear is the top of the list. So, but yeah, Three Mile Island in 1979, Chernobyl in I think 86, um, Fukushima, you know, these are, th- these are three world news changing events. You look at it in all of them, um, in Fukushima, magnitude nine earthquake, floods a giant nuclear power plant. No one died from radiation. Two people drowned because the diesel generators were in the basement. And there was a forcible evacuation of people away. And there were deaths from that. Elderly, poor health people forced to move. I think history is probably going to judge that as a mistake, an overreaction. The elevated radiation levels were not that high and probably were not meaningful threats to human health. So nuclear has suffered from fear. And the response to fear is government protections and layers of bureaucracies. And so, yes, it's been hard to develop nuclear in the U.S., I think that's changing. I think there's a bipartisan, an emerging bipartisan consensus that, hey, if you want to have lower carbon energy, this is the energy-dense, reliable, dispatchable form. So I think we're going to see the pendulum swing on nuclear. But to your point, it's going to be slow. There's going to be huge opposition Mm -hmm. to it. You know, 10 years from now, is it going to have a meaningfully different share of global energy? Unfortunately, probably not. China's building nuclear reactors. India's building reactors. Other places will but it, 
in the last comment on nuclear. Nuclear is also today used almost entirely in the electricity sector. 20% of global energy is delivered via electricity. 80% is delivered in other forms for other purposes. Okay. So, so but the most important piece, the most important use of energy, industrial usage, and in broader terms, to make things. About half of all global energy consumption is to make things. I talked in this year's or last year's Bettering Human Lives about these the four key materials we make, steel, cement, fertilizers, and plastics, the four pillars of the modern world. We use as much energy just to make those four materials as the energy delivered by the entire electricity sector. Mm -hmm. And they're not made using meaningful amounts of electricity. In fact, 25 years ago, about 15% of all the energy used to manufacture things came from electricity. Today, 25 years later, a little less than 15%. No change. It's hard to electrify manufacturing because the most important ingredient is high temperature process heat. Yeah. Thinking of melting metals, processing things. To make silicon, polysilicon for solar panels takes incredibly high temperatures to melt and purify silicon. So you, even wind, wind, uh, wind, wind, wind turbines and solar panels are very energy intensive to make them and very hydrocarbon intensive to make them because you need high temperature process heat that today we only can get from hydrocarbons. More than half of that could come from nuclear down the road. High temperature heat from nuclear plants. I'm all for that. The, we still don't have a, a, a clear nuclear pathway to get to the highest temperature process heat to make polysilicon, for example. And the only vision we have right now is that's coming from hydrocarbons. And in China, where, where most polysilicon is made, it's dominantly from burning coal and, of course, abetted shameless, shamefully by slave labor in Xinjiang. Yeah. Um, so no, no energy technology is clean or green and has no impacts. Every energy production technology has trade-offs and impacts. And you talked about the different trade-offs. One of the limiters, I think, of wind and solar is they take maybe 10 times more materials to produce the same amount of energy from hydrocarbons. So steel, concrete, metals, polysilicon. So they're very materials, therefore energy intensive mm -hmm. to make the systems themselves. And then they use a lot of land, about a hundred times lower energy density on land usage. So you, you see, you know, it, it, it's, 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 there's 300 some rejected permits for wind farms in the US. It, it's harder to permit a wind farm than it is to get new oil and gas well permits because the impact is so much smaller. Yeah. Oil and gas uses less land, impacting less people. You know, you've got to have tens of thousands of acres for a wind farm of just modest size. So that's a lot, you know, they're in rural areas, but that's a lot of people impacted. So wind and solar, look, solar I think is gonna be a long-term player in the global energy system. It's mm. probably not gonna be huge, but it's gonna be meaningful I think in the long run. Wind, in my personal view, we probably see peak wind when the subsidies are no longer rolled over. That may be in the next 10 years, that may be 20 years from now, but there's just so much materials, so much land for sort of an intermittent, you don't know when it's gonna be there and when it's not gonna be their resource. So what's the answer to that? Um, right now, it's natural gas. When, yeah. you know, when the wind and blowing the sun and shining, all the electricity comes from natural gas or coal or other sources. 
Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the biggest, and we'll move on from this after this, but isn't the biggest difference between, say, hydrocarbons and wind and solar is storage of it, correct? You can't really store the energy. Is that, am I wrong about that? You're exactly right. Hydrocarbons are lucky because they have this high energy density, less materials, less land to get a large amount of energy, Mm -hmm. and they come in their own storage packets. They essentially are, hydrocarbons are stored solar energy from stuff that lived on the earth powered by solar energy, got died and buried, and now they're in these packets. Mm-hmm. So you can store it. Yeah. The The answer to that has been that, that this sort of p- popular political answer is batteries, the same thing of electric cars. Mm-hmm. Hey, if we can just store this energy in batteries, then well, when it's at night, we can use the solar energy by discharging the batteries. The problem there is batteries are very expensive. So all the batteries we have in the planet today can store about one and a half minutes of electricity. And if everyone meets their aggressive goals, which is unlikely, by 2030, we'll have enough batteries on the planet to store 10 minutes of electricity. Well, when you have a storm or a cold winter, the Dunkelflat, as the Germans will say, you get a week, you get a week in, in uh, Europe in the wintertime where it's cold and dark and still. So you don't get wind or solar. Well, we might store 10 minutes. We're not going to store 10 days. So batteries, I think, just don't seem to have a pathway to be this sort of large-scale energy storage. They're going to play roles in peak shaving, and, and they help manage the grid on a short-term time scale. But they're, they don't seem to have prospects for long-term energy storage. Okay, very good. Um one question, I guess I'd, I'd like you to, I would like to see how you would answer this question uh, for a true believer that says, okay, well, if we don't stop oil, if we don't start uh, carbon usage right now, the, the earth is going to warm by, I've seen the largest two degrees, or is that what you've seen as well? Uh, to sort of an extrapolation, we've, we've warmed a little more than one degree C, mm-hmm. you know, we're warming at a, about 0.15 degrees C per decade. We'll probably hit two degrees of warming, you know, when our when our grandchildren are having kids. Um, but but the, the IPCC will project positive feedback cases. You can get four, five, six, seven degrees of warming by the end of this century. Not doesn't look likely, but not impossible. Well, what, what do you think, um, what would, I guess a, a good question is, what, if we stopped using carbon products, what would be the difference? Would it would it stop that warming, or what? What is your opinion on that? I know, I know you've studied this ad nauseum and know this to the back of your head, but what what would be the 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 called the effect there? I mean, would it be? I know it, we know it'd be economically destroyed. Yeah, well, the, the big the biggest difference in in less than two years, half of us would be dead. Yeah, um, just from food production. You take if you stop using natural gas, you don't produce synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. Over fifty percent of global food production comes from that one input. So, of course, it would not just impoverishment, widespread death within a few years. So, but I know your question's separate than that. Yeah. So, um, carbon dioxide's resonance time in the atmosphere is relatively long. Um, but if we, if you stopped emitting new CO two into the atmosphere, the human caused warming impact. Um, would would would, uh, would curtail pretty quickly, actually. Yeah. Now, the planet started warming about 150 years ago at the end of the Little Ice Age. Sure. So what we don't know, so we know the warming from, say, 1880 to 1940, um, th- th- we didn't meaningfully change atmospheric CO2 during that time period. So but there that, was that warming, warming was, was a natural. Yeah. So since then, you know, maybe a third of the warming we've had in the last hundred some years was then. Mm-hmm. That other two thirds of warming, we don't know how much has caused to increase CO2 in the atmosphere or a continuation of a natural trend. Um, 
I'm sure it's some combination of the two. Mm -hmm. e even if we assume it's dominantly from greenhouse gas additions to the atmosphere, you know, so maybe we've caused three quarters of a degree of warming. Uh, but the economics, the trade-offs. So at the current rate, if we kept burning hydrocarbons right now and we kept warming at the same rate we are, little more than two degrees C warming at the end of this century, that's in, in sort of center case of the economic cases the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change looks at, that would reduce per capita GDP at the end of this century by about 1%. Um, and if we stopped all hydrocarbons today, and so we didn't add that additional, say, one degree of warming, we just had a little less than one degree of warming otherwise, you know, that's maybe a wash, maybe reduces economic output a hair. But 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 the the difference with or without hydrocarbons in these two cases is about 1% of per capita income at the end of this century. The, the economic models used assume we continue economic growth and we continue economic progress. And so we're it basically means our kids are going to be 350% richer today or 346.5% richer than today. And 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 the immeasurably small economic impact if you just take the sort of middle ground of the economic work, work done on climate change. Mm. So it's pretty small, slow moving from our, our best guesses. We don't know the future, but that's our best guesses. But we do know if you make energy more expensive or less reliable tomorrow or next year or, or end it in a year or two, the impacts will be catastrophic on human health, lives, and economic well-being. Yeah. I think uh, what a lot of people don't I guess they don't factor in is that, it, yeah, it'll be bad for the first world. It'll be bad for the Western world, but it's going to be really worse for the for countries in Africa, Asia, and some South American countries that that are third world, you know, a growing yes. economy, developing economies, whatever you want to call them, because if they can't afford it, they're, they're going to stay in living in the 1800s. They're not going to get out of it. Uh, Liberty in itself has grown. You're no longer Liberty Oil Field Service, Liberty Energy, as you mentioned. You mentioned um, the geothermal which is uh, a growing thing. I, I see in growing Canada. It's becoming a thing in Canada uh, quite a bit. Outside of that, since I talked to you, that was two years ago, something like that last, what are some things that, uh, and I know you're constantly pushing for it, but what are some things that Liberty, some technologies, things that Liberty has done to improve their impact on the environment? So the biggest thing I would say we're most excited about, because to me it impacts sort of all aspects the biggest, the biggest plus of it is reducing the cost of producing energy. It also reduces local air pollutants, which are immediate and real human impacts. We mm -hmm. talked about that last time. Yeah. If, you're, if you're cooking your meal, burning wood indoor, that is deadly. So clean air is, is critically important. And then maybe third on my list of benefits from this technologies I'm going to talk about is it reduces greenhouse gas emissions as well. I'll count that. I think that's a positive, mm -hmm. but it's just nowhere near as pos as big of a positive as reducing the cost of energy and reducing local air pollution that impacts human health near our operations. And that is this movement from in our frac fleets from burning diesel to burning natural gas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 15 years ago, all frac, all, all operations were powered by diesel. Diesel sort of the workhorse horse fuel. All mining operations around the world are almost entirely powered by diesel. But there is a movement with technology and with investment to move more of that diesel consumption to natural gas consumption, which again, burns cleaner. It's natural gas is much, much cheaper than diesel, both because the world has far more natural gas than it has oil. And oil... When you produce it, you've got to refine it to produce diesel. 
like diesel is an awesome fuel. I don't want to badmouth it. But in, in, when there's applications where you can use natural gas, which is far more plentiful than oil, so cheaper than oil, and you don't need to process it very much. Natural gas is just methane. You know, to right. run our frack fleets, maybe we got to knock out the ethane or propane, a little bit of liquids that are mixed in with it. So less processing, more abundant, cheaper fuel. Does it, um, and I've noticed that technology is out there. Does it, are you actually using the gas that's coming out of the ground on site or are you processing it somewhere else and bringing it in? Both. Okay. Most of it today is, is tapping a local pipeline mm -hmm. that's, you know, in the oil field you're in and getting already processed natural gas, compressed natural gas into a trailer mm -hmm. and then bringing that to location. Instead of a truck full of diesel, it's a truck full of compressed natural gas. But we're also today, and I think in the future you'll see more, where we're taking what's called field gas, so gas produced either on that well pad or yeah. right nearby. So it's just gas coming out of the ground. A simple separator put the water here, the oil there, and then all the natural gas, including the liquids over here. And then we have a little processing system on location that knocks out those liquids, puts them into a tank so mm. they can be trucked away and sold as propane for for you know petrochemicals or remote heating of your houses or farm equipment processing and then we take that remaining now lightly processed natural gas to run these gas reciprocating engines on on location so again powering our frack operations by burning natural gas cheaper field processed natural mm -hmm. gas yeah well so, you're yeah, also uh, taking trucks off the road less emissions, you're taking you're more safety because exactly. I'm sure on, uh, when you look at safety as a CEO, driving is probably your top concern. I think it mostly is the road. Top, top concern by far. Yeah. Now, Jeff, I know you've dedicated your career mm -hmm. to safety and, and uh, you know, God bless you for that because, yeah, we work on location near high pressure iron. This, yeah. These are producing energy like producing anything else has trade-offs and safety is definitely an issue. Our industry is, is you know, I think thought of as da dangerous and people die all the time. And 100 years ago, that's not untrue. Yeah. 50 years ago, or even oil and gas production, remote operations today in poor countries, it is a, it's a dangerous game. If it's done by, you know, modern Western companies mm -hmm. over there, you know, if it's Chevron in the jungles of South America, it's going to be done pretty damn safe and pretty small environmental impact. Okay. If it's a local state-owned company in a poorer country, okay. it's it's a lot more cowboy. It's yeah. a lot bigger environmental impact. It's a lot more dangerous set of operations. Um, but yes, in, in our in our industry here domestically in North America, uh, the safety has just been, it's been a one-way street of 100 years of dramatic improvements in safety to the point where, to your point, Jeff, we're by far and away the most dangerous thing in our operations is driving. Because mm -hmm. um, people are driving in pickup trucks to go to location or to the work site. Uh, high diesel trucks are coming to fuel our equipment. So to your point, if we can power it with field natural gas and there's no truck driving up on location, that is, that's a safety impact. That's a clean air impact. That's a less resources impact. So get, yeah, people think of us as like the destroyers of the world. Now, we do increase greenhouse gases. Like there's always, I mean, most manias, there's always a kernel of truth. We increase greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. They absorb infrared radiation. Like, of course, the core of that, are we going to, on the, on the margin, warm the planet by what we're doing and powering the world? How do come? Yes, is the answer to that. Then the question is, what are the, the trade-offs for yeah. that? And again, we talked about those doubling of human life expectancy and wildly mm -hmm. better quality of life. Those trade-offs are usually worth it. Um, are, are compellingly worth it. Yeah. But in, yeah, in our operations on location, technology, process, training of people, 
we can continually make it safer and safer and safer to work on oil and gas locations. And to you and I, it's deeply personal. There's over 5,000 employees in our company. That's my extended family. Yeah. I don't want anybody in the Liberty family going home in a worse condition than when they arrived. I want them a little prouder, a little bit wealthier for the money they earned yeah. that day. Um, yeah, and it's um, 5,000 people in an oil field. That's 3,600 that are that are actually wearing hard hats, that are actually in danger. So that's a lot of people to worry about. Yeah, and it's it's a system, and, and I think most of America has no idea how complex the oil and gas extraction or the energy extraction model is. I mean, I, I didn't know it because I never worked in it until I got into this field, and it was amazing. And so was the safety part. I mean, the safety, all that has changed drastically. I mean, you know, we're talking about driving, so we're talking about saving lives, dying, but other injuries as well. You know, we're trying to keep that people from, uh, you know, carbon monoxide, uh, keep their eyes and heads from getting blows, their fingertips on, <laughs> things like yes. that. And we've done that. It, you know, it's the, the, the recordable injuries on fingers since the impact glove was invented or pushed into the market is 90% lower for that. And things like that, that matters as well, because we, you know, this is a HSE podcast, not just energy. But uh, last question I'll have for you, uh, you know, you may not be able to talk about things, but uh, in the future, uh, is there a thing, something coming down the road for Liberty that you're extremely excited about that you can talk about, or is it something that maybe you don't can't talk about just yet? Well, like the majority of our technical innovation, even going back to our quiet fleets or early or early dual fuel fleets, mm -hmm. it's slow and gradual, you mm -hmm. know, to, to make a, a robust system different than it was before takes time and investment. It took mm -hmm. us two years to develop how to make frack fleets quiet. Um, and so this conversion from diesel to natural gas, that's that was a multi-year developed technology development effort. Mm -hmm. And now it'll be many years building new equipment, retiring old equipment, transformation over. But we are every day working on, you know, software tools for decision making. Hey, this truck's about to fail. Why don't we pull it out now and change, you know, change the rods out before we throw a rod? Mm -hmm. um, we're routing trucks that are delivering sand on safer routes or lower traffic routes or more efficiently, shorter drives, pull from a different mine when you're going there and switch this detachment from there. So that's like we call it Uber for sand. So there's a whole <laughs> bunch of technologies, you know, that are just that are often incremental advancements. Sometimes they're step changes when they get rolled out. Uh, one of the things we're looking at in our technical team is today when we're producing oil and gas in a field, we're getting out, you know, seven to ten percent of the oil underground. Seven to ten percent. It's still a giant amount of oil, yeah. but most of it's still there. Yeah. So we're we're you know, we got pilot tests and working with some of our customers on. How do we get more of that oil out of the same place we're already producing from? This, you know, the, the default idea is rejecting ethane, sort of a, a, you know, sort of a lightish hydrocarbon in there to give more mobility and change the, change the surface tension factors on on oils. It could also be CO2. You inject CO2 underground. That's an enhanced oil recovery technique. It's an old enhanced oil recovery technique. But if we're going to get a larger pipeline infrastructure moving CO2 for underground sequestration, instead of just sequestering it, we can use it for beneficial use. Yeah. So I think in the next five or 10 years, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to, the industry today looks dramatically different than it did 10 years ago. And I, I think it's safe to say 10 years from now, it'll look dramatically different than it does today. Yeah. Cleaner, better, more efficient, and, uh, and, and larger. Larger. Yeah. Demand, demand for demand oil is at a record high today. Demand for coal is at a record high. Demand for natural gas is at a record high. It's expected to keep rising, yeah, too. Like, there's nothing, you know, when I've seen when they factor in all the changes, 
the demand for oil and gas is still there. It's still growing the same as, as the rest. Well, I know you're, uh, we're short on time here, so I'm going to um, just uh, end the conversation here. You know, I, I guess one of the things that was maybe the most exciting to talk to you about was when I uh, first uh, read your ESG report, saw some of the things you were saying. I think uh, out, on the outside looking in, uh, and I told you this before, oil and gas needed advocacy. And they needed correct advocacy because most of it was just people over here who were highly motivated against oil and gas. They had their they had their um, scheme together. They had their ideas together. They had the communication out there, and they were in all all avenues of communication. And oil and gas people were just sitting there doing work and trying to take care of business. And and they weren't. There was never a good response. There was never a sober. Uh, intellectual, thoughtful response to why it's important and what are and the biggest thing. The biggest thing is what you said: the trade-off. What are we willing to actually trade off? And you've spoken ad nauseum about that. Is is that would it would be it would be detrimental for us? And Jeff, one thing I want to say because I often get thanked for being an oil and gas advocate. Mm-hmm. And I, a small technical correction: I don't ever play the role of oil and gas advocate. I'm an energy guy. I, oil and gas is like the fourth energy area I worked in. My goal is not to promote oil and gas. It's just to promote facts and sobriety yes. around energy yes. and those trade-offs with climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in favor of all energy sources that help better lives. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm the first signatory of a letter of oil and gas executives endorsing nuclear. We've got like 60 executives there. We want to get to 100 top executives in our industry. That's not good for our business to endorse some energy thing, mm-hmm. but we don't care it's about that. The country. We want to be the honest, sober people. There's so much noise and silliness and crazy alarmist stuff in the energy world. Mm-hmm. Our goal is to be the honest, credible people in that space. Gotcha. Um, well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate very much your time today. I know you're a very busy man, but I think you uh, you talk about everything. But if you you know, I appreciate you taking a moment to talk about the safety and environmental side of your business, and with us at the uh, Mission Zero podcast. And uh, maybe in a couple of years, I look forward to catching up with you again. I look forward to it, Jeff. Appreciate what you do every day. Thanks, Take sir. care. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission. Please subscribe to the Mission Zero podcast on your preferred streaming service and be sure to give us a five-star review.